0: Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. In this episode, I interview C. James Townsend about his book, Socialism and the Singularity. The title is a little bit misleading, but you will soon learn more about that. The subtitle of the book is Marx, Mises, Complexity Theory, Techno-Optimism, and The Way to the Age of Abundance. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. The Singularity socialism is, when I wrote the
1: book, is I'm very much fascinated in a different element of the aspects of the singularity. Ray Kurzweil and, and a lot of people are talking about the technological aspects of the singularity, especially dealing with artificial intelligence, the transhumanists and how technological evolution is going to transform humanity itself what some of the sociological implications of that would be. My fascination was more, what are the economic ramifications as we evolve toward the technological singularity or the the economic event horizon as it was? And as I did more studying and background research, both on the left and the right, libertarianism, the Austrian school of economics, going back to Marxism, um, I began to see a convergence between classical liberal theory, Marx's later works, and um, some of the other economic thinkers. And when I say I'm not a socialist in the standard sense of the word, it's because what we know of socialism today is based on a lot of ideological permutations. Um, the left today is completely different than the left of, say, the 1950s or the 1940s. Um, Robert Zubrin's great book, The Merchants of Despair, he goes into that, and one of the chapters in his book is The Left Betrayed, and I do recommend reading that book because he does bring up an interesting point where the left basically threw out its old ideas of where the necessity for technological and scientific evolution to bring about abundance was absolutely (laughs) predominant in communist and socialist thought, but the left... Threw that out in the 1960s, and basically they adopted a form of Neo-Malthusianism. So in becoming slowly more anti-technological and anti-scientific, and wanting to almost go more, go back to the Middle Ages in a lot of different ways, or trying to combine in a crazy patchwork quilt situation of a form of uh, communal uh, medievalist technological fusion, like Rifkin tries to do in his books they're kind of taking us backwards to something that cannot happen. So when I say I'm not a socialist in this regular way, it's because the, the necessity for the full evolution of the technium, as Kevin Kelly calls it, which would be the full evolution of the productive material forces scientifically and technologically to lead us toward abundance is absolutely necessary. So I don't think I could anymore um, identify myself with the modern left because of that that fusion they've kind of done of, of wanting to go back to the commune, um, to communalism, to, to almost a, a quasi-technocratic medievalism. And it, it, I, I'd rather get into that more in our, our interview later on, um, because a lot of people listening in the beginning will, will might get a misunderstanding of what I'm talking about.
0: Right. And from the broadest perspective the book is about how marx's ideas come to fruition through capitalism and also how marx shared a lot of ideas a lot of common ground with classical economists who Mm -hmm. most people have not read and many people have never even heard of besides adam smith
1: well there's a great animus today against classical liberalism i mean you have the, the the great Propagandists today, Naomi Klein—that's my name for her, Naomi Klein—and um, Noam Chomsky, and a lot of other people are attacking classical liberals as proto-fascists. And the only way you can call the classical liberals proto-fascists is to be historically ignorant of, in an incredible extent. Um, classical liberalism arose first; it was the true revolutionary movement. The classical liberals and even the concept of the left arose in in the French parliament after the revolution. Um, The classical liberals sat on the left side of the parliament. The conservatives and those who supported the monarchy sat on the right side. And when socialism arose, it was in the middle, kind of a befuddled middle movement that combined elements of classical liberalism and classical liberal social ideas with conservative ends. So as Rothbard mentions that socialism is is really kind of a, a portman do ideology which adds some of classical liberalism in with conservatism. And a lot of people who don't do the historical study, they miss that. And I've talked to a lot of people, when you bring that up, they, they just look at you like you're insane. But a lot of people don't understand that Karl Marx, when he wrote the manifesto and Engels hadn't studied economics until after 1848. After Marx gets kicked out of yeah, Germany, after the failed revolution, he goes to England and he spends all of his time yeah. in the libraries. He reads David Ricardo and he gets a lot of his ideas from David Ricardo and what is called the classical economy. And basically capital is a Ricardian manifesto in a way of economics. He bases himself on Ricardian economics, but basically, um, my book really has a, a different central course and a lot of people Take from it what they want to do. It, it's not a book about the left or the right or classical economics. It's a book about rising above what I call the delusional dialectic of our time. We are we are inundated with this battle and this fight between the right and the left. We are we are constantly inundated and they constantly fight each other and they talk past each other to the point where nothing gets accomplished. And if we don't raise ourselves above this. This 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 hamster's wheel to nowhere. We don't accomplish anything, and we have to be willing to look at what we believe and examine it. And that's why the beginning, first chapter of my book is a quote from Marx, which is question everything. And that is what the book it first really starts, in, as at core, we have to look at what we've been doing and question it, especially in the face of coming technological evolution. Because I see so many times when I look at and read what futurists are writing, or I.E. Spectrum is writing, or, or other people, and even in the face of the technique coming, this, this singularity, um, our ideas aren't changing. We, we are using today's and yesterday's ideology to try to diagnose tomorrow's potential. And like Einstein said, we can't fix today's problems with the same ideas that we used to create them in the first place. And, and that is really a core we have to do. We have to go back and do that research, at least historically, and look at it. What has failed? What has worked? What, what, what scientifically even speaking? Because in a way, we're running a huge experiment that, that no one has a handle on because it has its own motion, its own life. I mean, Kevin Kelly's great book on what, the tech, no, what does technology want? It's such a fascinating, incredible book, and I recommend everyone read Kevin Kelly's works. But that one really, he gets to the heart of it. And in a way, he brings back Karl Marx's idea of the productive material forces, which he kind of gets from Hegel's idea of the Weltgeist, the, the world soul moving in the world. And it's almost as if technology wants to go somewhere. And that element really comes from complexity theory. Because complexity theory also blows apart all of our ideas, because that's one of the subtitles of my book. Um, in the face of complexity theory, and what it's showing us in chaos theory, what is left of our ideologies? And we have to question this old idea of this Cartesian and Newtonian mechanistic materialist view of the world where things are static. And that's one of the things that are, is at the heart of my book that a lot of people don't get, is today's ideologies... Um, a lot of them on the left, um, Keynesianism, um, modern monetary theory of the Chicago School, you know, Milton Friedman is their champion. A lot of it is based on one fallacy, even the sustainability ideas. And I mentioned in my book, and I didn't go as far with it as I probably should have gone because I had a limitation of time, but it's all based on a static um, system that's come to full equilibrium. So it's a static economic system that is at the heart of everything, Malthusian ideas, is all based on a static, steady-state system that's come to full equilibrium. And almost all the economic fallacies today are based on that. And complexity theory blows that apart. It's already proven it completely wrong. And I touch on that also in the book, um, that this idea that we have to get back to, and it's one of the sad things about the left, is they've abandoned dialectical materialism, or just dialectics itself, which is that form of evolution, everything changes. And yet this is the main contradiction in what I might call older socialism is, yes, everything changes, but I want to create a system that won't change. That is static, that we create the very same products year after year, day after day. We can get rid of monetary prices. Money is evil like the Venus project and the Zitgeist movement. Everywhere you look, we, we come, you can use Occam's razor and come to the very same foundation. And that foundation is based on almost a medieval view of the world. You know, like the great chain of being. You have God in heaven, and he radiates through the kings, which are his representation, and all that funnels down through this huge bureaucracy, and then down to the serfs. And in a way, all, a lot of our political ideas are still based on that. And it's it completely has to be exploded in the face of complexity theory and what's going on with technology today, because how can you control what's happening? You can't. I mean, Butler Schaefer, he wrote a great book called The Boundaries of Order. And the fact that someone on the left didn't write this book is really a shame that it, that it was an Austrian school um, libertarian who wrote it because his idea of a holoarchy and in the face of chaos and complexity theory, how does that change, you know, our political systems, our economic systems? Um, it, it's questions that have to be asked. But, But what I really find so f- fascinating is, Complexity theory is the third rail on the left today. Don't want to touch it. You have um, people on the neo-left attacking libertarians for the idea of spontaneous order. And I'm like, uh, don't you guys understand what dialectics was? (laughs) It's spontaneous order.
0: (laughs) Now, I've critiqued various equilibrium theories with a number of economists from different persuasions. Although it seems to still be a popular idea, in spite of the fact it flies in the face of all common sense and everything we've observed over the past, well, 300 years or thereabout, and, of course, the pace of progress and of innovation has quickened over the course of those three or four hundred years immensely. And it continues to exponentially rise.
1: Yeah, that's true. In the face of constant change, how come our economic systems and our political ideologies are based on static systems?
0: And that's exactly what I was going to say. And going back to what you were saying towards the beginning of the conversation...
1: And I come from a different position. You know, I don't come from 180 degrees from left to right. I say I come from 90 degrees because, you know, like if you understand Hegel, you've got the thesis, anti-thesis, and then you have the transcendent. And you have to come almost from that transcendent position. Left says we got to do something. People are starving. They're poor. Yes, that's true. Um, libertarians in the right bring up classical liberal economics. But if you raise artificially the the wage rate above the market rate of labor, you cause more unemployment and you raise all the cost of living anyway. So we go round and round that no side listens to each other. And obviously, well, if we raise the wage rate like 18, 20, 100 times before, it hasn't worked because today's wage rate is now the subsistence wage rate, right? And, and last year's wa- wage rate, when we raised it, we were hoping it would solve the problem. But in the face of constant increasing um, cost of living, increasing the wage rate is Sisyphusian. The only way to bring down this whole issue is to lower the cost of living. If you lowered the cost of living 20%, you would increase everyone's rate. And the poor would be helped. The people on welfare would be helped. The retired would be helped. Um, Everyone would be helped by constantly lowering the cost of living. And that's what technological deflation does. And that's basically at the heart of my book is the aggregate supply shock caused by technological deflation has actually been lowering all prices since the rise of the industrial revolution we can see that in all figures when you when you use a constant monetary unit the prices of everything even in the face of constant inflation has been dropping and we don't see it because inflation keeps rising the prices whether or not it's you know inflating the money supply increasing debt um (coughs) over regulation you know all the different inflationary things we can do in the economy has actually kept us from From reaching utopia and that's the thing I found fascinating because in in all my studies of the book and at the heart and this is where kind of Karl Marx united with John Baptiste say united with the Austrian School of Economics is at the heart of old communist ideas especially around Marx was the idea of the law of immiseration and I go into it in one of my chapters and it's very important to get to that on that idea Now, Marx had a pessimistic view of it from David Ricardo that in the end, as as production increases, all the prices continue to drop. And it's an effect we've seen since the rise of the Industrial Revolution. And they thought that would cause profits to keep falling, wage rates to keep falling. And in the end, as Marx said, everyone would be immiserated. Um, Both the worker and the capitalist would end up, you know, being poor. And that would spark off the revolution, and then the state would be taken control of, and then the workers and the capitalists would use the mechanism of the state to smash the state, and we'd get a new and completely different production system. Now, he's basing everything he sees from his 19th century view. Now, when we look at things from from the late 20th century to early 21st century, we update it with what the science and technology is doing, the idea of the singularity and the technium expanding, we see in a lot of ways that it's basically true. Um, as science and technology and productivity expanded, prices kept falling. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that profits will go to zero and all, all the disastrous effects because a lot of people didn't see both sides of the equation because as you're expanding production in the face of technological innovation, the inputs of, to production are also dropping. So your profit margins do fall, but they don't go to zero. But in the end, prices keep dropping and if we did not have any inflation if the if the Federal Reserve was never created in 1913 and you can run the thought experiment and a couple of economists have done the studies that prices today would be so dramatically lower it'd be it'd be impossible to even believe and it's it's seeing the world from that viewpoint how do you eliminate poverty and usually the one question is you have the state have all these poverty programs. But what if all those caused the cost of living, the cost increasing and, dr- and kept us going the different direction? And if you look at the, the, the economic figures, you see from when all the great society programs started kicking in in the 60s, poverty stopped falling and became institutionalized and it's almost a straight line across staying about, I think it's about 18% of the population. And yet uh, there was a um, there was an economic study that showed that if we just let the evolution of the system continue, poverty today would probably be about two percent. And it, it's hard to understand that people don't. It's hard for them to wrap their heads around it because, for whatever reason, when you talk about evolution and trusting evolution in complex systems, we're 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 trained not to. We we're trained to to latch on, and I think it's part of our simian brain, the, our older parts of our brain, want to worship the totem, fetish, idol. The big mommy or daddy figure, um, the divine king who will help us and make everything right. I think in our, our sweep of evolution, human beings are still kind of stuck there. We have 21st century technology with medieval minds. And I think that's what our, our, our issue is, because we have to learn to see the world completely differently in evolutionary terms. And science and technology are the is the only evolutionary force on this planet right now. Politics are reactionary our ideas. Most of them are all reactionary our ideologies They want to either take us back or stop because the world's going too fast I want to get off and you look at things like the draconian precautionary principle That would basically stop all the evolution of science and technology so that we can get comfortable, but yet it'd be disastrous Sustainability is basically based on limiting all human beings to the extent technology and resources of X period of time and 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 at heart of that is, once again, the static steady-state system. We want to get back to a static steady-state system um, where in the Middle Ages, things moved very slowly and the guilds oversaw everything and you had the divine king, you know, he was God's representative and he made sure the world moved in a certain way. And I really think a lot of our ideology is still backwards. I mean, even if you look at the Venus and Zitgeist pro, uh, project, um, even though you've got this futuristic idea, it's still based on all the economic fallacies of centuries past. The animus against money, the desire to to basically be run by some type of omnipotent situation. Now it's a super AI. um, And they were going to have all the leaders picked by computer. And and basically a lot of his ideas, you can find out looking in history who had them first. Um, There's nothing new in it. I mean, it, He basically put Star Trek posters over old belief systems that that are almost to be found in every single one of the older socialist utopias written for the last 300 years. And it bamboozles a lot of people because, unfortunately, our education system, I think, has really dumbed so many people down. And they don't want to look in history, and they don't want to read anything other than a short blog or watch a video.
0: And it's really sad. We can debate whether it's... Hereditary or environmental, I would say stupidity is equal parts both. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's but something that ties in with virtually everything you've said is an excerpt from your book talking about the invisible hand, Smith's idea. Hegel's cunning of reason, Marx's productive material forces, Teilhard's new sphere in a Point, Buckminster Fuller's ephemeralization, Social mind, the technium, and the singularity—all of these ideas are very similar and related mm-hmm. to one another. And I can think of several Eastern philosophers who also could be put into that category: yeah, the da- Tao of um, Lao Tzu, the Tao and Sri Aurobindo's idea of the overmind fusing with everything on earth or Ken Wilber's integral system. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea, or rather people seem to confuse names with the things themselves. So the majority of political debate and sadly economic debate boils down to tossing out names. It reminds me of a bit from Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley. The Farmer says, Them's pigs, I can't imagine them being called anything else.
1: Yeah, it it is. I think we get stuck in our terms. Um, Like a lot of people are talking about post-capitalism. But we might as well also talk about post-socialism or post-fascism. What's coming is so completely different, um, we have no word for it. I mean, what do you call a system that no one has really thought about before in the way we're being faced with it um the idea of a holoarchy or omnialism or omniarchy which is the rule of all by all um but an integrated system in which governance basically arises from the system through the advancement of the the internet to the to the new global brain i mean it really comes down to the idea of in a realm of abundance what what need is there for politics as we've known it before. I mean, you can see as the internet has changed production, and as 3D, 4D printing is coming up, production is going to change dramatically. I mean, what can the government control when you can 3D print a gun on your house? Um, we're, we're reaching a point where our, our old political ideas of let's run the mom your daddy to solve all our problems and issues is really falling apart. I mean, the post office is being torn apart from the bottom down. And yet we've got all these calls to save it. I mean, could you imagine what would have happened in the early 20th century with, if government stepped in to save the blacksmiths, save the wheelwrights, save the cartwrights? rights? Um, this, uh, this fight between Uber and the taxi cartel is, is just another prime example of it. Um, why do we want to save the system? I mean, one of Marx's great quips is that which is leading deserves to be pushed over. I'm, it's time to start pushing it over. Um, but yeah, there is a word fetishism that we get in the way, even with a singularity. What does a singularity mean to you? We have all these different books using the name. What does it mean? Um, or I use the term the economic singularity or the economic event horizon. Um, because it's an event horizon itself, like, like in physics, past that horizon is infinity. How do we conceptualize it? And it's hard as human beings to see the future. I mean, it's a constantly changing place. I mean, it can change tomorrow. Um, so when I look at all these names for the same thing, I and why I put the first chapter, which I wish I'd been able to go a lot farther into, which is the brief, brief, brief his, history of complexity ideas, is human beings have been moved by this idea. Um, like the idea... You, only, you can't step in the same river twice, which is Herodotus. Everything is flux. And how do we face that in a, in a society where that is happening more constantly? So I don't know what we can use the name. I reach a point where it's almost like you you, you can point at it. I mean, we're almost like Zen. Zen isn't the the is the finger pointing at the moon. It's not the moon. And almost technologically, is we can point at, using some concepts of what's coming, but we can't really see everything. We can only see through a glass darkly. Kind of like Marx did, he saw through a glass darkly. Um, A lot of the classical liberal economists saw through it. They saw that as production kept increasing and prices kept dropping, and you reach a point of total abundance sometime in the future. And even the Austrian School of Economists, Mises, talks about that. Rothbard mentions it. I mean, they talk about it, but they don't go there for different reasons. Um, they don't want to sound utopian. But I, but I really think we, we have to address this issue, even though we're, we're in the realm of, of, of word fetishism, that at least we have to start saying we have this thing that's happening and we can see the surface but we can't see the center, but we can at least use, like in physics, we can, we can begin to conceptualize and use mathematics and different ideas of what it is that's, that's arising. And it's an evolutionary system. I mean, we don't know in a hundred years what will happen. Um, we're along for the ride. It's like what they say about life. The only way out is through. And the only way out as it is, to, the way to the singularity is through, through the process we're now going to. But every time we try to stop the process, every time we try to limit the process or control the process, we create all these um, disastrous effects that ripple out that are always on behalf of vested interests, like trying to control the internet by using the fear of control of the internet to get you to control the internet. I'm really upset about the left trying to push everything to be controlled by the, the FTC. Leave it alone. No one control can control a complex evolutionary system; it's impossible. Yeah, and and I think this desire to control it just comes from primitive parts of our mind, and our a lot of our ideologies uh, move us to the, do that because we want assurance, we want safety, we want um, comfortableness with our surroundings, and in a world that's constantly changing. People get really upset. I mean, I think I quote in the end of the book from Virginia Postrel's great book, The Future and Its, en- and its Enemies. Um, and she talks about that. People are very uncomfortable with change. Um, they, they they talk about it. I mean, even the the, the, the Guys movement talks about, you know, wanting to have products that are made to the best of their ability and keeping them longer. <laughs> A future Zit movement that wants... To keep the technology longer i mean i mean if you built a Commodore 64 out of titanium i mean it think about that it, it becomes ludicrous it, it'll last a long time but but in six months it's obsolete
0: when you mention a medieval mind i thought well it's more appropriate to call it a pre-cambrian mind because i or fish like maybe amphibian or reptilian mm-hmm. The reptilian brain. I don't. I don't know. It's it's fascinating. I mean,
1: it was one of the quips I think Ludwig von Mises said that whenever you scratch a socialist, you always find a medievalist. And it's and it's interesting. A lot of people resist that, but if you really get to the heart of it, um, it it always comes out. But then you also find that on the right, um, the idea of distributism, which a lot of um, conservative Catholics in the first part of the twentieth century wanted to go back to, is just a form of medieval guild socialism. Yet today, distributist ideas um, doing away with global trade, having l- only local production—all um, those ideas, which are actually neo-fascist as well, are really medievalist, or, or or they could come from a reptilian brain. I I don't know. It's one of those fascinating things that I wish psychology, as an as a group, if they really want to turn the flashlight back on their own minds, you know, instead of being the 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 bearers of ideology and trying to change all their studies to uphold a certain viewpoint. They really need to roll up their sleeves and instead examine that viewpoint. But the problem is, anyone who's ever done that, it's a thankless job. I mean, like you would mentioned, you have your own issues with the neo-left. Um, if you look at those people who took on that job of criticizing the left, it's a thankless job. Um, One of my favorite authors, Jean-Francois Ravel, who was on the left. I mean, his Totalitarian Temptation, fantastic book. Um, Without Marx or Jesus is also a fantastic work. And then before he died recently, his last two books, The Last Exit to Utopia and The Flight from Truth, I mean, fantastic works. But he was the redheaded stepchild of the left. Um, When you shine the spotlight or the searchlight, on your own ideology and where we're failing, you you don't have many friends. I mean, Oriana Fallaci, I mean, her communist bona fides, you cannot say anything against them. I mean, she fought the Nazis as a teenager in Italy, as a member of the Communist Party, and yet they threw her out of Europe because she saw the flood of Europe with Muslim immigrants as reactionary, revisionist, and conservative, and as an attack against the Enlightenment so you know it's one of those things and even i was talking briefly with um desai whose great book marx's revenge i discovered when my book was basically finished um he basically took on a thankless job as well Um, his book goes into basically what i researched only he's a marxian economist where where the left went wrong by abandoning the evolutionary ideas of marx's later thought Um, It's a thankless job. Mine is as well. But I find it funny that, like, I have Marxists who've read my book, and they think it's the best book on Marx they've read. I have libertarians who read the book, or techno-libertarians, and techno-optimists, and they think it's the best book they've ever read. So my book is really a crossover book. It's basically about where is it we can come together and see the similarities and stop arguing about the differences.
0: It It is a shame that some of the ideas from mercantilism, which of course were taken on by fascism because it's easily packaged into a nationalistic ideology, are still so popular with both sides. In America, I can't really speak for any other country, and the feudalist disdain for currency and for usury are also very much with us, even though as you well no, interest rates are so crucial to regulating an economy.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really sad. I mean, the whole attack against money, I mean, which arose with the resource-based economic system, which is the new utopian idea, but it's not new. It goes back to communism. I mean, after Lenin, the Bolsheviks took over the Soviet Union, they tried that. They got rid of monetary prices. All the producers were to produce as efficiently as and effectively as they could, and then distribute along the line of production, you know, to the next level and layer above them for production. And it, it failed; it completely failed. Um, their economy crashed. Then they had to do the new economic program, and they brought back monetary prices in order to have any type of an economy. And it goes back to um, Mises's idea of the economic calculation problem which was a bomb in the 1920s that socialism can't work if you do away with a market economy. Um, And now you've got the Zeitgeist Movement saying, well, you can do it again by doing Oscar Lange's solution in his book, The Computer and Socialism, that a super AI will now be able to do it. And I think I mentioned it, you still have a problem Um, because any computer that's embedded in the economy would have to be more complex than the economy itself to manage the economy. Therefore, it has to be more complex than itself, and it can't be. It's like why our brains don't have a master neuron. Um, we'd have to have another brain atta- bigger than our brain attached to our brain if you needed a controlling system. And complexity theory blows up that whole idea that you can do a top-down command and control economic system. And in the end, complexity theory has proven Mises and Hayek's idea of the knowledge problem, that it's lack of knowledge that, that is the main problem because no actor can ever know all the knowledge in the economic system, even a super AI, because it's in everyone's head. And everyone has their own ideas or their individual actors going after their own interests. And to try to coordinate all that becomes an impossibility. And then the, the question becomes, why do you want to control it in the first place?
0: And complexity theory... Oh. Of course any complex system does not care what you call yourself or why Mm. you are championing a particular cause it does not matter if you think it is just and righteous to let as many immigrants into a country as humanly possible it does not care if you believe the world's population is going to outstrip its productive capacities which is also another cherished leftist myth you demolish in your book some of the doomsaying of people like Paul Ehrlich. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, actually, I didn't demolish him. He's been demolished since um, Dr. Julian Simon did the heavy lifting. And it's so sad that the left attacks Julian Simon has vilified him. And um, Indor Golcani, his works which take off after him, and even Bjorn Lomborg, who's the skeptical environmentalist, is actually a really good book, has been totally attacked. And, and that was what was surprising to me, is that in attacking the the cornucopians the techno-optimists, they attacked Karl Marx. Because the very sad thing is that these individuals actually proved Karl Marx's vision that the full evolution of the productive material forces leading to abundance was the way to go. So... You know, in in the ideological sphere, where you're grasping to find any evidence of Marx's theory that is proven, going way back to the '70s, it was proven, at least that part of his theory. Um, and the fact that Marx and Engels hated Malthus, called them names. I mean, it's it's so interesting that Marx basically says that even if population remained going exponential, science and technological evolution would be even a, a higher Uh, exponential curve and we've seen through um, all the studies that have shown that as a society evolves as people become wealthier the the natural trend is for us to have less and less children and we've seen it in europe we've seen it in america we've seen it everywhere and now we're seeing in the third world country that as gdp increases people are naturally curbing their own fertility Um, The UN has had to adjust its fertility figures downward several times now. Um, They're now saying we'll probably peak around $9 and then start falling away from there. And the sad thing is these Malthusian ideas, the Club of Rome that was disseminating them back in the 70s and in the 60s, and still cling to them, has actually caused the problem by trying to do draconian population control, by thinking... You know it's best not to let them develop. Which a lot of the, the green left has tried to keep the third world from developing. And if we'd let them develop, if we'd had a full evolution of nuclear power worldwide, if we either allowed the quote technium of Kevin Kelly or the capitalist system to evolve faster, we'd probably be less than seven billion today, with with a higher lifestyle, and without a lot of these problems. And you. It's like going back to Bastille, the great classical liberal uh, writer in the early 19th century. We have to learn to see the unseen. So we have to look back in history. What if we had a parallel universe, and instead of doing what we did, we allowed X to happen? What would today look like? And so few people don't do it. Like like the nuclear power movement. Um, A lot of people don't know, and they think I'm crazy when I talk about it. And uh, Dr. Zubrin brings it up in his book and other people have as well, that the evidence for the big oil companies paying off the new environmental movement to shut down nuclear power is there. If you want to be intellectually honest and roll up your sleeves, you find it. So they did away with the negation of their negation. So we got stuck with the petroleum age longer. And it sounds insane, but when you really do the research, the world starts changing. And these economic players using third parties to hide uh, artificial monopolies being created is there.
0: Now, the, and I wish
1: more people would do that.
0: The Neo-Malthusians are not just concerned with the sheer number of people, but also how much they are consuming and how much pollution is being created.
1: But if you look at the figures, you see that actually
0: even before
1: the advent of um, like even the EPA in the United States, Pollution was actually falling. Um, it was a natural trend. Like child labor was already falling before Congress stepped in and abolished it. If you look at a lot of these trends, they were an evolutionary trend before government stepped in. Same thing with poverty. If you look at the poverty rates in the United States, they were already falling until the Great Society programs in the 60s, at which point they they stopped falling. They become entrenched bureaucratically. Um, and... It's almost in everything you look at. At the same time, though, you see that resources have actually been expanding. And that was the thing that had freaked out so many of the Neo-Malthusians on the left when Dr. Simon wrote The, the Ultimate Resource and then The Ultimate Resource too, And his whole uh, bet with Paul Ehrlich about um, that commodities in the future would be cheaper. The and, prices of course, Ehrlich of, lost.
0: The prices of different metals. Right, right. And we actually do see
1: that. And it's a long word trend. I mean, artificial resource creation through, through different means does cause prices to go up. But the long-term trend is constantly downward while um, the, the abundance of that resource actually increases. I mean, the talk about low-hanging fruit is only um, valuable if you're talking about an animal who can't invent ladders. I mean, a deer can't invent a ladder. You know, monkeys can climb the tree to get more, more fruit. Human beings can plant more trees. And, and it's that, that idea that we not only do um, substitution, we also create and invent more resources. And people have a hard time getting their mind around that. They think, okay, we have a limited earth with a limited amount of resources, and we can only do X amount for a limited amount of time. And they look at the earth like your refrigerator that has only a certain amount of milk in
0: it. Speaking and of eventually the, we're going to run out of milk. Speaking <sighs> of milk, I have here the most compelling argument in your book, in case there are any plebeians tuning in to my podcast, and I don't think there are. You say in 1965 a gallon of milk was about 37 cents wholesale. Now, well, by 2012, it was $2.42. You can finagle it, but the real cost of producing milk has fallen by about 87% since 1965. So if the dollar had kept its value, grocers should be paying about a nickel for milk, and it would retail for 10 cents
1: it's, it's across the board with almost everything. Um, people don't understand what inflation does, whether, you know, increasing the money supply, when you increase the money supply beyond what is necessary to buy, what is being produced at X period of time, the value of the currency drops. So it takes more and more currency to buy the same amount of goods you bought yesterday. So the, the phenomenon we see with hyperinflation in certain countries that there's a shortage of currency is actually an effect of inflation. Like you see seen the Weimar Republic of Germany, in Zimbabwe, Venezuela is now doing it, South America through the 70s and 80s. Um, prices escalate, they go through the roof. And this idea that we've got to just get used to rising prices, the question is why? Because if we had a non-inflationary currency or if, if we just kept the, the monetary uh, um, amount of currency static, you see prices fall, constant falling in prices, and you see that in the price of computers. You saw it in price of fax machines. You see it in the prices of cell phones. You constantly see prices falling, and yet in other areas you don't. And it's the hardest concept that people have to get get used to is when you start looking at things using a, a non-inflationary currency, which is what economists do. They pick a currency like the 1995 dollar or the 1930 dollar, and then they run back. And they do the their studies. They show the, that all commodity prices have actually fallen since 1800. Food prices have actually fallen since 1800. People look at the price in in the, in the grocery store and they don't understand that. I mean, since 2008, with the quantitative easing, all prices are going up. Like especially for um, groceries, that's an inflationary effect. But you have to look at the long term. We get we can get confused by looking at only the short term. Um, And also like Matt Matt Ridley and other people do it based on um, how much work it takes you to buy a certain good that has also been fallen. So it takes you less time to um, pay for a hour of illumination today than it did in 1800 or in 1950. All that has fallen and would continue to fall in the absence of inflationary pressures. And it's something we have to come to grips with. I myself, when, when you talk about that, I mean, and this is one of the sad things on the left, that I do not know why they champion neo-Kinzianism and modern monetary theory. because And then totally discount that inflation is one of the major problems we have. It's like they're protecting the very debauching of the worker that they say they want to stop.
0: Well, in some of the Federal Reserve's policies are not exactly in line with monetarist or Keynesian ideas. It's more of, well, we're going to put the brakes into acceleration whether or not it needs to be done because we want to just pump this sucker full of money.
1: Right, but, you know, Keynes kind of set it off, but the the fallacies go way back. I mean, you have the monetary cranks going way back to the 1700s. And a lot of these, these, these ideas are a lot, come from the monetary cranks. Um, But the idea that you can drive the economy with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake and just keep alternating it just gives you whiplash. And that's what we're facing. We have constant whiplash. And science and technology and where we're going um, really is the promise because one of the things I love doing, and it's kind of a crazy thing, I love going to the dollar stores and the Goodwill stores and looking at the books. And I buy old books or I buy old books online about the coming crash. And you look at the economic figures of people going back to the 70s and how that we were supposed to have hyperinflation. And a lot of these things never happened. And a lot of people were wondering why they didn't happen, uh, especially in the libertarian and you know some of the conservatives. And when you look at technological progress, you realize that some of the studies showing that almost all the growth in the U.S. economy since, say, the mid to late 70s, 80% of it was through technological productive increases. You realize that we were saved from hyperinflation and a real horrible crash by just technological deflation, that while our government's running the currency into the ground, Technology was advancing to the point where it's actually giving more and more value to the currency. And that's why I kind of mentioned that we're in a race between two competing exponential functions. One is an exponential function of debt and inflation, and the other is an exponential function of a, a the aggregate supply shock of technological innovation. And, and it's one of the things I looked at, and, and it's one of the things you have to do a what if. I mean, think about, everyone who's talking about nanotechnology and metamaterials. They're talking about that very soon, that we're going to be able to produce any good using 80% less energy, using 80% less resources, at 80% less price. So you got to think of the world. What happens when the, the technological deflation rate changes from 3 to 4% today to 10% a year? Then if it goes to 20% a year. Then it goes to 30 percent a year that's where you're talking about prices are falling at the same time your currency is actually gaining value the savings in your bank account will be gaining purchasing power and what would the government do and our ideas our monetary ideas do if you try to do what the fed is now tasked with which is to not only um, stabilize prices which is one of the tasks that the fed was supposed to do and the question is why they want to fight deflation But the, why are you fighting technological deflation because it, it in their idea it props up profits? But at some point in the coming economic singularity and the technological singularity I foresee a deflation rate uh, running beyond beyond 10% a year
0: And this is precisely why cryptocurrencies are so revolutionary Yes, when you have something that does not change in its quantity or has a set rate of inflation built into it you don't have to worry about manipulation
1: right exactly and that's why it'll be interesting to see the evolution of cryptocurrency because if you look at the rise of bitcoin it's it's an exponential curve from its value what was it like four cents to 800 and 900 something of bitcoin now um, it kind of shows, and I put it in my book, it shows in miniature in a short period of time what would actually happen in a longer period of time if we gave up this idea of we need to keep pumping money into the, the economic system. If we took the money out of the control of the politicians and bankers and we put it into a, a new system where, where the people themselves have more control, you would see wealth rising dramatically. Um, it, it portends an incredible future, and yet it's like the, uni- the idea of the universal basic income that everyone's championing today is still based on welfare and all It's based on giving the big daddy state all power and control over you by making everyone basically an employee of the state. And there is a different way of doing it. And my next book I'm, that I'm working on will go into that, that there is a better idea. That is based on production and productivity and not redistribution, which increases all the the disastrous inflationary effects.
0: The UBI may be premature at this point, but when we have reached or have come very close to the singularity, handing out an X number of dollars may not be terribly bad. It might be necessary.
1: Well, I think it's the handing out that's the issue. There was an interesting libertarian thinker called A.J. Galambos, which no one knows about today. Um, unfortunately, he passed away, and his heirs have basically kept his works out of publication. But he came up with an idea of a productivity fund. That is very interesting. The way he had it, I don't think, it would work. It was voluntary, and everyone would give a certain amount to as like a tribute. If you used an idea from Newton, you contributed to this productivity fund, and, and that money could be used for research and development as well as other things. But I'd say if we change the system, where we base, a, 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 like, like some of these sovereignty funds like Alaska has and these other places have, where it's based on productivity and the growth of the economy, and then everyone owns an equal share of it, you, you're, not, you're not engaging the law of diminishing returns, you're instead engaging the law of increasing returns. I think that's the important shift we have to do today. We have to stop these ideas of, of using the law of decreasing returns. We have to change our mindset. We have to change our paradigm. We have to get into using the law of increasing returns. And, and Kurzweil sees that it's going to become the law of exponential returns. Um, and if we do that, it changes everything. Because then we, we are basing everything on rising wealth of productivity, which is where wealth comes from. I mean and that's what people don't see that poverty would is would have naturally fallen away as our as productivity increased which would have naturally increased the value of the currency and all of our savings and it's seeing the world in that different productive way so we're not redistributing we're not giving people become participatory and like i mentioned actually it's the two books confused but i do quote in the in the new book um and I think I quoted Roger who Go- Was it the communist author? He was a French author who, who basically he excoriates the, the neo-left because in his view and what, what Marx and Engels wanted was communism was basically participatory. It wasn't giving up your power to the state. It was taking back your power. It was the elimination of alienation, not the increasing of alienation. And all economics and redistribution is based on giving up your alienation. Your 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 power is alienating yourself rather than taking it back and creating a system where everyone has the ability to completely fulfill themselves and to reach their total potential possible. And and I think the, our ideas of the UBI now is based on alienating ourselves back to the state, whether or not it's a world state or the nation state. And I think we have to get that the new state that's coming the holarchy or omniarchy is a state of humanity where it's like sovereign individuals interlinked in, in a complex emergent spontaneous system so there's a balance and yet everyone controls equally and benefits from productivity and I think that's where we should be thinking and going it's a new thought because the future should be about everything that's completely new it shouldn't be about dusting off ideas from the past and giving them a new spray paint. Oh, the, the communist author, I think, it was Roger Garadi.
0: Okay. French
1: Yeah, because a lot of people today think, and this is well, the difference, because under the influence of LaSalle, communism is giving up everything to a centralized state, or socialism is giving more and more power to a centralized political union. And that's not the idea. I mean, Karl Marx wanted the withering away of the state. So did Ingalls. Um It was the right-wing Hegelian influence that took over the left that has brought us to the Bolshevization, if you would, if that's the right word, of our ideology. It's like this idea about socialized medicine. I mean, everyone looks at what's happening in the United States as this good thing without looking at the detrimental effects in other countries. And yet... If you look at the evolution of the system, it was the interference of government that has caused prices to go up and to cause um, dramatic effects that have kept prices ever going up and, and resource shortages. And yet what's happening with the X Prize in medicine, what's happening now with you have high school seniors creating new genetic um, tests where the price of a genetic test, which once cost $1,000, now costs pennies. We're at the beginning of this process where all of medicine is about to be revolutionized and the price is about to drop 90%.
0: We are giving everyone the means of production. They're gaining them, and besides the cost of rent, living in a particular place, I foresee most everything going down dramatically over time. And maybe that's because I've had so many Georgists on the show... But I think land is certainly something economists should pay a little more attention to.
1: Well, land is a
0: relative term. Um,
1: we create more land in different ways. A high-rise building puts more people on and more space per every unit of land. so you can you can look at it as as an evolution of expansion. Um, going to high-rise farming will do away with the complete need of farming, you know, millions of acres. Um, we're about to grow all of our our meat protein in vats soon. So, all that land we're using for ranching now will basically be turned back to nature in the future. I mean, in a way, science and technology creates
0: more land. But, you know as well as I do, as someone who has studied economics and as a realtor, that the issue is not the scarcity of land, but where it is located.
1: Yes, that's true. Human beings like to locate together, that causes uh, shortages in available land and infrastructure. Um, So you do have some constraints, and value does also based on supply and demand. But I also foresee that with 3d printing houses that cost $5,000 with, with new meta materials that I think really based on carbon, which is going to bring prices down. I think we're, we're facing a future of a a deflation in prices and a deflation. in Um, so I don't really see an issue or a problem in in those terms of, of needing more land. I mean, we, we haven't even begun, um, homesteading the seas Um, we haven't begun terraforming mars i mean how many billions of people are needed to transform mars and venus Um, we don't we we're not thinking in those terms we're still thinking at the dirt beneath our feet and not the stars over our heads and and it's part of that reaction that set in when we landed a man on the moon that we then retreated from that high frontier and it's really sad that nihilism and pessimism has really created what I call an iron ceiling over the world. And all we do is near-Earth orbit things. Um, we've had the ability to get to Mars in, in just scant months with some of these nuclear-powered new um, rocket engines. I mean, a lot of them have been on the, the drawing board going back to the late 60s and the 70s. Um, we, we, we withdrew from that with with radical environmental concerns which were which were needless it was just a ludite reaction so but i I do foresee we we have an issue that we're not talking about it's the elephant in the living room and we're ignoring it and you mentioned it when the price of everything starts dropping down an asymptote towards zero what is the welfare state going to tax and that's basically at the center of my next book Um, what are you going to do when the, the next discovery makes you able to have all the, the electrical power you need off the grid for your
0: house? Presumably, when... if someone doesn't need to pay for power, for medications, for many of the electronics and plastic things they own, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then rent would not be as much of a concern because even if it is exorbitant, even if they're living in a place like San Francisco, they'll be able to pay it.
1: Well, correct I mean I uh, a young gal once told me or a younger woman um, wanted me to defend property rights and I was really on fire that day and I decided to go from you know the, the classical liberal libertarian viewpoint and, and I waxed eloquent bringing in besides natural law theory you know human biology and genetics and everything else and and I held forth for like 15 or 20 minutes based on that paradigm is a number of years ago and she just looked up at me and had one question but in the realm of abundance does property rights have the same force or effect or necessity they would and she stopped me. and and i had to think about it when when you reach the realm where most things that we think of as necessity today of dropping in price to a point where like they're air and water like john Baptiste said in in and this is so, it's so incredible here you have a classical liberal french economist looking into the future running the thought experiment forward like i did based on what he sees in just the economic system of his time at the very beginning of the industrial revolution and what happens when when things are almost like air and it dramatically changes things, our, our necessity. Do I need to own a car if I can, with my smartphone, call a ride to pick me up in less than five minutes with like, like these, the new idea of the driverless cars? Um, think about your housing. One of the reasons most people own housing is because I need something to protect myself from the inflationary effect of the centralized banking system. My equity is based on the fact that they're debauching the currency a lot of times, besides supply and demand effects. Um, do I really need to own my property if that inflationary effect vanishes? And the funny thing is in, in a deflationary economic system, there is actually perverse effects of, of owning long-term debt that we have to think about. So it's, it, it's, it's dramatic. I, I really think in the future we're looking at, I mean, imagine what would happen if you don't touch the healthcare system and you allow its advance. Unperturbed by political, ideological, and and crony capitalist um, situations and effects. Ten years it could be it could be eighty percent less with with dramatically new products, with new medicines, with with new devices that you can walk into any clinic. I mean, I came up to this because I was in an auto accident um, a couple years ago, and I had to go to the chiropractor, and they need, I needed to get a head MRI. And with the health insurance I had then um, on a PPO system, what they did, is, it cost $2,500 for the head MRI. They usually end up paying $500 and you're stuck with a $2,000 bill. And my chiropractor said, ask him what the cash price of the MRI is. Okay, pay cash for it. Ask him what it is. Because I had a health issue about...